Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Carr. She is a professor of sociology and the inaugural director of the Center of Innovation in Social Science at Boston University. Her research interests include aging and the life course, psychosocial factor influences on health over the life course, and end-of-life issues. And those are some of the topics we're going to talk about today. So Dr. Carr, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Oh, thank you for having me on. Great. So I would like to start by asking you about one specific uh, big issue that uh, we have in modern industrialized societies that has to do with obesity. So there, you're a sociologist and one thing that you study has to do with weight stigma. So what is it and does it affect in any way the obesity uh, epidemic, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, rates of obesity or having a very high body mass index, which is the ratio of what you weigh relative to your height, um, obesity has been rising quite precipitously in the United States and most parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem because we know very high body weight is associated with a range of physical health outcomes like elevated mortality risk and risk of diabetes, risk of some cancers. Um, it also puts pressure on bones and, and on lungs, right? So sleep apnea is another physical outcome of obesity. So there's been a lot of research demonstrating that obesity has physical health effects, but there's an unintended consequence of problematizing obesity. And it's this, um, people who carry very high body weight are often stigmatized. They are discriminated against in the labor market. They're discriminated against by healthcare providers. And they're often treated in an unkind or rude or disrespectful way in everyday life from friends, from merchants, um, from people they see on the street. And so we have to strike this balance between figuring out ways to keep people healthy, yet at the same time, not stigmatizing those people who carry more weight than others. Mm -hmm. And do you know where this stigma comes from? From the perspective of sociology, are there any specific sociological factors that explain why people uh, discriminate against people who are overweight or obese? There are. And it's kind of ironic in that it's the average American who actually is overweight. There are more people who are overweight than those who look like supermodels, who are very, very slender. Yet at the same time, that cultural ideal of extreme slenderness persists in the United States, and I suspect Spain and other parts of the world as well. And I think one reason why, at least according to the sociological literature, is that we perceive that people have larger bodies have done something wrong to have a large body. So there might be the assumption that they don't have self-control, that they're eating too much, or the assumption that maybe they're not working hard at exercising, for instance. And those are some behavioral factors that we judge harshly that may contribute to their high body weight. But in fact, there are a range of reasons why people have a high body weight that have absolutely nothing to do with their behavior. Some key factors are genetics. Another really important fact is just socioeconomic inequality. 
it costs money to be thin. I can afford a gym and I can afford fancy foods and I live in a neighborhood where it's easy to walk. But for people who have fewer socioeconomic resources, produce is expensive in the United States, whereas McDonald's is very cheap. Dangerous neighborhoods don't have safe places to walk. People who have stressful jobs might come home and stress eat and often stress eat unhealthy foods. So I think those are some of the reasons why we tend to make an attribution for body weight um, that's very negative when in fact there are many more important structural causes for high body weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we might get back to socioeconomic factors when we discuss other aspects of people's lives, because socioeconomic factors certainly affect lots of things in people's lives, not just how they eat. But I guess that in many cases, also because people have to deal with so many issues when they are poor, for example, they might not even have time to cook at home. For example. Absolutely. That's a really important point. People who do shift work or working parents, parents who are single parents, it would be a luxury to be able to exercise or afford expensive vegetables or produce. And that's something that just doesn't work. So there are a lot of really important structural factors that are linked to body weight. Um, but kind of getting back to your initial question as well, like why is this happening? Cultural norms vary around the world. And in the United States and most wealthy Western nations like parts of Europe, for whatever reason, the cultural ideal is extreme slenderness for women, even though that's starting to change a bit. And for men, it's kind of a lean masculine physique, but that's something that's not universal. There are some parts of the world where a more voluptuous um, body is considered attractive for women because it looks like something, or it's associated with reproduction. There are historical moments, right? If we look at paintings from past centuries of Rubens, whereby the women were quite curvaceous, right? And we look at them today and some people might judge them as being heavy, but if you're living in a time of poverty or food scarcity, having a full body is a sign of actually wealth. It means that one can acquire those healthy foods that one needs to eat. And in past eras, scarcity and poverty was associated with obesity. And today it's, uh, sorry, a uh, with slenderness and today it's the complete reverse mm -hmm. yeah i mean of course it's obvious that at least some aspects of beauty standards change over time i mean uh, as a man for example i'm very well aware that nowadays it's uh, more of a muscular kind of body that is considered beautiful but just a few decades ago even lead singers were very very thin so i mean it is what it is i mean perhaps for some of these issues different factors would explain why people prefer one body type to the other but uh, things change over time Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the one that hasn't changed in the United States is height for men. Um, maybe this is the case in Europe as well, but men who are shorter than average face a pretty persistent stigma, both in terms of earnings and in the dating market. And it's a little off topic, but there are a lot of really interesting studies of things like online dating and men whose heights tend to be under five foot eight using the U.S. metric um, have far fewer kind of swipes and clicks than men who are taller. So uh, there are a lot of different factors and body weight is one. It's really important, but you're absolutely right. There are other dimensions of bodies that we judge more or less positively. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to dealing with obesity and overweight, I mean, 
from a sociological perspective, how do you think we should tackle this issue? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think an important one, but a hard one to address is to underscore that there are physical health consequences because we do want people to maintain a healthy weight, but to shift our thinking a little bit. <clears throat> there's something that's called kind of the healthy at any weight movement. And in fact, there's a lot of data showing that there are people whose body mass index would classify them as overweight and low levels of obese, and they are in perfectly fine health in terms of all their other biological markers. So I think one issue we need to think about is that high body weight and poor health do not always coincide and really take a whole body um, assessment, right, in trying to understand health and, and wellness, because we know that doctors and healthcare providers stigmatize as well. Um, you often hear vignettes that a heavy person goes to the doctor with a sprained ankle, and the first person they're told is that you have to lose weight, and they're like, I'm not here for weight, I'm here because I have a foot problem. So I think we really need to train our healthcare providers to tackle kind of the question at hand. Um, Another is to recognize that stigmatizing people on the basis of weight can actually make their physical health worse. And this is something I've published on with some of my co-authors. If we make people feel bad about their body weight, they'll stop going to the doctor. Who would go to a healthcare provider that's only going to tell them you gotta drop the pounds, right? And so by making overweight and obese people feel bad about their weight and judging them, we might actually be contributing to further health problems because it means that their care might start to diminish. So I think it's striking that fine balance between articulating what the risks are associated with body weight, yet at the same time, just placing those risks in a larger context of all the other risk factors, you know, smoking, access to healthy food, driving without a seatbelt, you know, and really just trying to take away that moral dimension. Mm -hmm. So in a topic that is about a topic that is more or less associated with it, I would like to ask you about uh, physical activity now, because sometimes it's interesting in all across the social sciences, sociology specifically in this case, sometimes there's a difference between what people do and what they perceive they do. So uh, what is the relationship, for example, between the kinds of physical activity people engage in and perceived health? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's important that people engage in any form of fitness, mm -hmm. um, but it, finding fitness that matches one's physical capacities, right? People often perceive that they need to either run a marathon or do nothing at all. And I think a recognition that there's a continuum. We find the exercise that is well linked to what our body's capacities are based on our age, based on our record of injury, but also at the same time, being very realistic about what it is that we do. And I think it's important to emphasize that Exercise and fitness matters for much more than body weight. I mean, body weight is one, but as an aging researcher, you know, we know that there are high and rising rates of dementia, for instance, and exercise is something that actually can help our brains because it helps our heart, right? And so it helps with cardiovascular health, which also can lead to diminished risk of kind of cognitive functioning problems. So I think when we think about exercise, we have to recognize it has a whole bunch of different benefits 
and that we don't need to think about fitness as an all or nothing proposition, right? We can build our way up um, and really just keeping expectations in line with one's physical realities and capacities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I was about to save this question for later on in the interview, but I think that just uh, from what we talked up to now, I can ask it at this point. So I, I think that from what we're talking, we can conclude that certainly sociologists can also help uh, medicine and healthcare, right? In in many ways, because that sometimes <laughs> there's this idea associated or attached to social science in general that it's i mean soft science and stuff like that and it's just about abstract theories about how people behave but in fact it can have real life practical applications including in medicine very much so that you know uh we have to recognize that people are not always completely rational actors. It's not, you know, if we were rational actors, we would all eat three square meals a day and we would sleep eight hours a night and we would get our, you know, cardiovascular exercise, right? Our cardio and our stretching all done. And we don't all do that. And partly there's some kind of psychosocial factors having to do with um, motivation, having to do with fear, having to do with anxiety, but then there are also these structural factors. And that's something that healthcare providers need to recognize that if someone doesn't have access to a gym, telling them to lift weights probably isn't going to happen, right? And so tailoring the medical recommendations to where someone is, both structurally, economically, in terms of motivation, and in terms of what their day looks like, time use even, all of these social factors really need to be taken into consideration when any kind of healthcare provider is making a recommendation to their patient. Mm -hmm. So I would like now to get into uh, a topic that has to do with uh, how romantic relationships and marriages might uh, influence how people plan specific aspects of their lives in the long term. But just before that, just to introduce the topic, is it the case that people being in romantic relationships or married more specifically uh, or not, uh, does that fact alone influence how, how they plan their lives? in the long term, like, for example, when it comes to estate planning, retirement, savings, and stuff like that? Very much so. And as we get older, there are certain kinds of plans and preparations that we should do. One is estate planning. Um, that's things like having a will. So if you die, you have told the state who you want your home to go to, who you want your savings to go to. Likewise, we should do healthcare planning. And I suspect there's similar patterns throughout the world, but at some point, many of us will have cognitive impairment and we will not be able to tell healthcare providers, do we want a feeding tube? Do we want a ventilator? And we have to articulate these plans either in writing or we entrust them to a family member. And for those who are married, for the most part, they have a ready-made helper, right? They have their spouse. And in fact, those people who are currently married and specifically older adults are the ones who are most likely to make all of these plans and preparations. And part of the reason why is that it's a little frightening, right? It's frightening to think about when I die, this is going to happen. And it's just easier to talk about these issues when you have a spouse by your side. 
And also with your spouse, you kind of plan very strategically. You might think about who will likely die first. It's usually the man, you know, historically. And so the couples can make those plans. Um, but for people who aren't married, those people who don't have a ready-made helper who need to make these plans the most, they're the ones who do it least. And that's something really important. Never marry people, divorce people are less likely to make any of these preparations in part because it's frightening, in part because they don't have a partner nudging them along. But that means when they die, oftentimes, or when they're dying, they're less equipped to deal with some of these difficult decisions and processes that have to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So singlehood, in fact, can impact or influence the kind of long-term planning people do in their lives. Definitely. And there are different ways to be single. Uh, we use that as kind of a catch-all. Uh, one way to not have a spouse is to lose them to death. And so mm -hmm. widowed people are often among the best prepared for end of life. The main reason is they've had a spouse, they've made these plans, but then oftentimes when a spouse dies, it's a wake-up call and you realize, I really need to get everything in order. You know, if your spouse dies without a living will, that makes you all the more wanting to do so. So people who lose a spouse due to death are very likely to make these plans. Those who are unmarried due to divorce or to never having been married are the ones who have quite low rates of doing these things, even though they may need it the most. Mm -hmm. And do you think that uh, modern countries, modern societies have, um, when it comes to social security, for example, are well prepared to deal with uh, what seems to be increasing rates of divorce and people just deciding to not have a partner, men or women, whatever. Yeah, I think what older people in particular are doing, they're reinventing how it is that we partner, right? Um, we used to think of divorce as something that happened when people were pretty young. Now, at least in the United States, and I suspect some parts of Western Europe, the most rapidly growing group of divorced people are what we call the gray divorce, meaning those people who get divorced in their 50s and 60s. And part of the reason for that is that middle-aged people know they're probably going to live a long time, right? Older adults are living into their 70s and 80s. And sometimes someone wakes up at 55 years old and says, do I really want to be married to this guy or this person for the rest of my life? And so they end their marriages. Um, but it doesn't mean they're single. It means that they're dating. It means that they're cohabiting in very large numbers. It means that they're doing something that's huge in Europe called living apart together, which is basically going steady with one romantic partner, but you each maintain your own home. Um, there are economic reasons for that. You want to protect the value of your home so your kids can get it rather than this new partner. Um, so older adults are definitely partnering today. They're just doing it in new ways. And they are um, kind of turning away from traditional marriage or remarriage and turning more to cohabitation or to kind of going steady because it just makes it a lot easier legally, especially with things like inheritance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm asking you that. I mean, some people, particularly the more conservatively minded, would probably condemn singlehood and people who just don't want to get married. I'm not doing anything like that here, but I, I was just trying to understand if, of course, societies change and the politics and the and and the social security and all of that has to change 
uh, accordingly to serve people's needs. And I was just trying to understand if by having these social shifts, uh, those systems and institutions would also have to possibly adapt because there would be eventually more people uh, alone in older age in decades to come, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sorry, I probably didn't answer that part of the question, but you're absolutely right. You know, most parts of the world have have public pensions, right? So in the United States, the public pension we have is social security. And social security is kind of a, a, let's say a monthly check that everybody gets when their retirement age. It's historically mm -hmm. been 65, now it's moving up to 67. But there are rules that are key to things like marital status. And that's one of my newer research projects. So for instance, if someone loses a spouse due to death, and they choose to take their spouse's social security benefit, they get kind of 100% of what their late spouse would have gotten. If someone is divorced, they don't get their former spouse's benefit. They only get it if they have a longer marriage to that spouse, um, if, if, and there are a range of other criteria. So actually, a lot of different countries, the rules they have about what you get from your public pension and how much you get and when you get it, is key to marital status in such a way that it actually benefits those who have the traditional one marriage for life and disadvantages those who are just living their lives in a way consistent with contemporary families. You don't stay married to your same spouse for life, for instance. You find a new partner who's more compatible or you grow old with a partner you're not even legally married to, but there can be these economic disadvantages that are attached to those arrangements. Mm -hmm or you just want to be single. I mean, there are ma many people nowadays, men and women, that just don't find it appealing to have a partner for one reason or another. And there's no, no issue at all with that. But perhaps uh, our political systems are not well prepared to deal with some of the difficulties that later on might come up because of that, I, I'm not sure. No, you're absolutely right. And there's a literature among sociologists called structural singleism. And just as we know, there's racism in the world, there's ageism, there's sexism. Some actually believe that those who are unmarried are targets of discrimination and some of it's mm -hmm. structural. And there's so much evidence that people who are never married, meaning they haven't partnered, uh, their economic well-being is considerably lower and especially in later life and part of the reason is they don't have economies of scale right real estate is very expensive to pay for on your own tab if you don't have someone else contributing think about your food bill your electricity right all of those things never married people are bearing that on their own yeah. and that means that they save less and the less you save when you're 35 or 40 means the less you have as a cushion once your retirement age. So you're absolutely right that people who have never married face a lot of real obstacles. Healthcare, for instance, they don't have a ready-made person to make decisions for them. Oftentimes, some people who might be a best friend or a partner who's not a legal partner might not be able to have visiting hours, for instance, at the hospital. So at least in the U.S. and I suspect other parts of the world, there are countless ways on kind of a daily basis that never married people have difficulties that are imposed on them by social structures. Mm -hmm. So, and when it comes to the um, effects that 
being in a marriage or any other kind of romantic arrangement, let's say, uh, the kinds of effects it has on long-term planning. Are there also gender effects here? I mean, being in a romantic relationship, does the way people plan things differ between men and women? There are. And there's a phrase that says women are the kin keepers, right? Women are typically the ones who just keep things going on the home front. And so they tend to be the ones who are more proactive in moving these things along, whether it's advanced care planning or even estate planning. Um, older women are considered uh, less financially savvy in some cases than their husbands, but women historically, because they've taken on most of the parenting, they are the ones who are especially mindful about things like inheritance, and they don't want their children to fight over a vase, for instance. So they will be the ones who move along with things like estate planning, who gets what. So there are definitely gender differences based on earlier social roles. There are also gender differences based on people's kind of realistic expectations about who's going to die first and is not to be doom and gloom, but in most couples, the man in heterosexual couples, the man tends to be three to five years older than the woman. On top of that, men tend to die younger. So oftentimes the wife has to be prepared because she's going to have many years on her own in many cases after her husband dies. So they have to have that um, preparation as, as a way to take care of themselves in the longer term. Mm -hmm. And of course, when people are married, and particularly when they have children, they of course have to divide uh, housework, uh, they, they have to have some time for leisure, play, they have to play with their children and take care of them. So what are some of the main challenges that come up here? Of course, I've mentioned these examples, but for married people with children in modern industrialized societies, what are some of the main challenges they face when it comes to time uh, management? Time management. That is a good question. Uh, there are only 24 hours in a day and yeah. people are expected to do more and more and more. Um, I think one of the big challenges is trying to achieve some form of, of balance in the couple, right? There's research going back to the 1980s that says women have a second shift, right? That's a very famous term that they work nine to five, then they come home and they do a second shift, which is unpaid, which is cooking dinner, cleaning the house and caring for the children. And that definitely has started to narrow a bit through the years. But even if you look at time diary data today, the women are still doing more of the daily tasks, even if they work full time. And so daily tasks, that means things like meal preparation and bathing children, whereas the husbands tend to do the work around the house that's more sporadic. So they'll mow the lawn on Sunday or they'll, you know, take out the trash on, on Tuesday, but they don't have to do those things every single day. Um, and that's one reason why women do often feel there's an imbalance. Um, another trend that we see in the time diary research is that men have more leisure time, right? When men come home, they might be more likely to do things like read or do sports, whereas women do more on the home front. And we know that people can manage almost anything, but if those kind of imbalances persist, it's going to lead to anger. It's going to lead to resentment or guilt or a whole range of negative feelings that can seep back into that relationship and cause some real tensions. Mm -hmm. 
but do you see those shifts happening also in the US when it comes to, for example, gender roles and what men and women are expected to do at home, for example, when it comes to house chores and taking care of the children and all of that? Because I mean, for when many times when we talk about this kind of subject, we look to the paradigmatic examples of gender equality, mm -hmm. like Central and North Europe, uh, Scandinavia, Germany, the, the Netherlands, places like that. But uh, I, I mean, possibly there is also a shift happening across the world in general, or at least the West in particular. There is. I mean, the main change that we've seen is that men are indeed increasing how much housework and childcare they've done, certainly since the 1950s or 60s. But what's happening overall is that the amount of time dedicated to housework in particular has just dropped overall. It's basically people are just kind of putting dumping their standards a little bit lower about home cleanliness or paying someone. Another thing that's happening more and more is that even though people are working full time, they spend a lot of time with their children, but they're multitasking. And so we see a lot of that in the time diary studies that in time diary studies, people report what they're doing basically every hour of the day, but increasingly they're reporting like two or three things. So I'm cooking dinner while playing with the children. And there's a debate, is that appropriate for the kids that you kind of have a little bit of mom or dad's attention, they'll kind of talk to you while they're cooking supper. And so there is some evidence suggesting that people are being more efficient in their time use, but there might be kind of harmful consequences. Um, another factor kind of from the global um, scheme is that we still know that in Europe, you all give a lot more federal and social support to working parents. In the United States, we don't have much, if anything, in the way of parental leave. So even if someone's a new parent, they have to manage these things. Uh, it's a very rare man who's a parent who takes any kind of parental leave. So because we don't have that governmental support, as people do in, in Northern and Western Europe, Couples really just have to figure it out on their own, and they often feel they're failing on all fronts, which can really bear on the relationship dynamics. Mm -hmm. And because, of course, you focus your research on the U.S., I would like to ask you this question because many times I hear people who are more left-leaning and from Europe because it's easy to compare the European countries to the U.S. when it comes to certain social benefits, for example, that... Uh, in, in Europe, we take for granted, but in the US, probably not so much. So when it comes specifically to uh, work-life balance, because that's something that people nowadays talk a lot about and worry a lot about, do you think that um, with the social benefits people get in the US, like, uh, I don't know, vac paid vacation, uh, and I mean, other sorts of uh, benefits that they get through work that it's uh, that they're being able to have some sort of work life balance. Or is that something that uh, people in politics particularly should be working more on to achieve in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S., we definitely need more policies to facilitate work life balance. Fortunate workers receive benefits. People who are full-time workers will receive health insurance, for instance. Yeah. But those who work part-time, 
they might not get that. They might not get vacation or paid vacation. Yeah. If you're working full time, often you'll have two weeks of paid vacation a year, which we know is far less Sorry, that other parts of Europe yeah. are often in awe how some people in Europe will take off like a summer. Here's yeah. like, yeah, kind of like two weeks. Um, and the longer you're with your company, you can kind of bump that up. But the other big one is parental leave or family leave. We have something called the Family and Medical Leave Act. Not all people are eligible. You have to work for a quite large company with a certain number of employees. The leave that you get is unpaid. The only thing you get is you can take a couple weeks off with no pay to care for your child or your aging parent and you won't be fired. Um, and so it doesn't have a very high rate of, of uptake. Um, at the state level, there are about nine states that give a little bit more flexibility um, in terms of elder care and child care, but people do feel unsupported. And what happens is that people are just burnt out and they quit their jobs. I mean, we saw this during COVID, people trying to work at home and raise their kids and educate their kids just led to a lot of distress and anxiety. And for women in particular, just exiting the labor market because it was just not tenable to do all of that simultaneously. I mean, there's even something that people now are calling, I think it is silent quitting. The people that are just fed up with how the job market works and they just uh, quit. So Yeah. We've seen a lot of that. It's sometimes just in very specific jobs. I mean, it's been among, among women because, again, that whole notion of trying to do their job on Zoom with two kids behind them being homeschooled, it was very difficult. But school teachers, healthcare providers, even like restaurant workers, those people who just got really exhausted during the pandemic really did kind of quit in larger amounts. Um, the other, some older workers who just felt a little cautious right about their health also left so we are in a bit of a crisis with the labor shortage in many sectors of the u.s economy right now mm -hmm. and by the way since you mentioned the covid19 pandemic uh, during it of course it's still ongoing but during the early phases of it let's say where we had the lockdowns and all kinds of restrictions like that was there a relationship between being an adult with physical disability and being vulnerable to perceived economic insecurity and food insecurity, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's something I've written a paper about. And yes, we know that people who have physical disabilities or sensory disabilities face a lot of obstacles in, in the United States. Um, they have lower rates of employment. They face more discrimination. So there was kind of an interesting, not wholly good or not wholly bad, but a pretty complex situation for persons with disability um, in the US. On one hand, they did not on average see their income plummet in large levels, in part because many were not working. They had lower rates of working at the outset. So essentially there was nowhere lower to go. But what we found in our work is that their food insecurity actually increased, meaning not having three square meals a day, not having enough food. And some of the main reasons for that were was partly financial, but it was because food prices went up during the times of scarcity. But the other was access, right? If someone had access issues, they couldn't get to the store or if they relied on a, a public ride service, those rides evaporated. 
home meal delivery services. We have something called Meals on Wheels where volunteers, you know, bring meals to your house if you're homebound. That stopped because of possible infection, right? A lot of those programs shut down. So people with, with physical disabilities did have a lot more food insecurity and a little bit was driven by money, right? And food prices, but the other was access. They couldn't get to the store. The people bringing food to their homes stopped. And so it, it really was a considerable problem. Mm -hmm. Do you in the U.S. have good enough social security measures to help people with disability? You know, we do have Social Security, um, you know, SSI. We have benefits for people who file disability. And yeah. they, they do help in many ways in terms of financially. Obviously, the benefits that people receive aren't enough to cover all the expenses one has, right? It's, it's yeah. fairly modest. Um, and oftentimes it doesn't necessarily come with these supports and services that help you to get to the place you need to or to hire those helpers that you need to bring the food and the goods and services into your home. So there definitely is kind of a floor, like a minimum amount of financial support. Um, but, you know, some scholars believe it's not enough to counteract all these other um, obstacles that face people who have um, some forms of physical impairment. Mm -hmm. So are, are people with disability statistically poorer than people without any disability? Yeah, absolutely. They have higher rates of poverty, higher rates of unemployment. If they are working, on average, their jobs are kind of lower status. Their jobs have fewer managerial um, tasks, which means they're not in that pipeline, right, to climb the corporate ladder. So there are multiple reasons um, why, on average, people with a disability have less income, job security, and wealth, meaning accumulated assets relative to those who don't have an impairment. Mm -hmm. And at work, they sometimes are also victims of uh, different sorts of discrimination. Correct. Yes, um, I've done a lot of work on that, as have some other colleagues in the United States who have been very prolific. But absolutely, um, you know, the sociologist Irving Goffman taught about, talked about stigma and stigmas against bodies, right? It could be obesity, but it also applies to people who have some form of physical impairment. And so what we found is that people who have a physical disability, it doesn't matter if it's visible or invisible, they report oftentimes more um, demeaning relationships with coworkers. They report less opportunity to get ahead in the workplace. They certainly report more mistreatment even out in the world by service providers, whether it's people at the grocery store or the healthcare providers. And some of the reasons actually are similar to the sorry to the obesity reasons we talked about that people with disability oftentimes are adjusting their work lives to meet their bodies but in the US there's always a belief if someone's not working as much as they, people feel they should that they're considered lazy or a shirker someone who's trying to avoid work and so those are some of the reasons why people with disabilities are judged unfairly and harshly by some communities mm -hmm. And uh, one specific aspect uh, where they get affected by just being disabled is their interpersonal relationships at work. Correct. Absolutely. That's something that we found in our research based on kind of national surveys of thousands of Americans. And there are reports of, again, being treated less well by coworkers, for instance, and not having opportunities to get ahead. 
But the interesting thing we found is that those patterns don't happen for all workers. It happens for particular workers. And interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, it tends to be white collar workers or professional workers, higher status workers who report the most uh, discriminatory or uh, unkind treatment. And our explanation for that is um, goes back to classic Goffman writings, right? Irving Goffman on this group of people called wise people. That if we're used to interacting with people, we, we learn how to interact with them. Um, and we know because health is so stratified in the United States, people who are blue collar workers or people with lower income are more likely to be acquainted with people who have an impairment. Those who live very privileged lives tend to have less contact. And so consequently, they don't develop the empathy of the understanding. And that might be one of the reasons why they're less kind and welcoming and accepting to their coworkers who are upper middle class. Whereas the blue collar workers, they're comfortable, they have greater levels of comfort and knowledge of disability, and they make the relationship work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and because you study aging a lot, uh, I would imagine that people who have disabilities of any kind use, usually have more problems as they age, not just uh, related to their uh, uh, physical issue or anything like that, but also when it comes probably to their retirement savings and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, um, definitely. And there, we know that people who, who grew old with uh, disabilities do have uh, less money, they have less savings, and they have more demands on that, right? If you need to adapt your home to your body, right, that costs a lot of money. And so economically, there are real obstacles. But there is some evidence that they, they accept their bodies and they adapt more, right? I, there are a handful of studies increasingly that look at how people who've had a disability since they were 30 or 40 manage aging. And some of them actually manage really well because they've been strategic their whole life and they know how to arrange their environment and to get the support that they need. So in some ways, they're actually more kind of intellectually prepared, uh, strategically prepared, prepared. They learn how to navigate their environment. They learn how to enlist those supporters that they need. Whereas for other people, it's a bit of an identity shift, right? If you've been able to, to run and jump and do everything for most of your life, and then things start to change when you're 60 or 70, it does require an adjustment period, right? In a way that those who have learned to manage and to strategize, um, those who have had a disability for a longer time, or better prepared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just before I move on to the next topic, uh, I'm going to make sort of a comment. And if you disagree, please let me know. But I think that uh, many people are really not aware of how hard it can be to, for example, uh, getting out of pover poverty, particularly if you have uh, added issues like being disabled. But even if you're not disabled, I mean, just being poor, it's really, really hard to get out of that state without help, particularly state help or social help of any kind. But I mean, many people, particularly the ones who have never been poor, uh, and uh, to some extent, it's understandable because they've never been there, but it's really, really hard 
to get out, out of poverty, right? Absolutely. Very hard. And these notions of just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, yeah. go get a job if you work hard enough. Absolutely not so. Um, that people in poorer health live in less safe environments, for instance. Sometimes they lack transportation. Sometimes they don't own a car. And so in many cases, they can't even get to work or the kind of jobs they're qualified for only will hire you part-time, which means not as much money, not as many benefits. <clears throat> Often means you have to move every time your rent goes up, you can't stay in your home. So there are real structural factors that make it very difficult. Um, but also I say this often, it's expensive to be poor. In the United States, the little grocery stores in low income neighborhoods charge much more for food. They charge, their gas stations charge more for gas. The rent is expensive. And so if you live in poor neighborhoods, ironically, the prices of the things you need to get through the day are more expensive. You can't buy in bulk, for instance. The stores worry about theft, so they jack up the prices to counterbalance your fear of theft. Uh, and then also, if you are a lower income person, it's almost a full-time job getting the food and services you need, figuring out where is the soup kitchen, the food pantry, how are you going to get there? Calling Social Security, getting your check requires being on the phone, getting services, getting services for your child. So just getting through the day takes a lot more time and a lot more money and a lot more travel for people with less income, ironically. So there are multiple obstacles that are just intensifying. And to put it in a larger perspective, in the United States and most parts of the world, we've had rising levels of income inequality going back to the 1980s. And this is a major trend. And what that means is that the people with the most money at the top are buying up the homes, driving up the prices of homes, cars, food, private schools. And so what they're doing is they're buying what they want, driving up the demand and the people sitting at the bottom can't afford it. They're being priced out, especially with real estate in the United States. So it's almost a perfect storm whereby those who have the least are forced to pay the most and increasingly so over this past historical period of about 40 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that many times it is sort of a snowballing effect because if you get low enough in terms of your socioeconomic status, then your problems keep piling up and piling up and piling up. And at a certain point, I mean, if you just don't get any help, you can't get out of it at all. I mean, it's just nothing. That, there's nothing out there that you can do alone to solve all of those issues. Absolutely. It's kind of it's a, the, the ball kind of collecting more and more snow or moss or that widening of inequality between those at the top or bottom. And we're talking about kind of low income people as individuals, but we know that people are embedded in family networks. Mm -hmm. And if there's intergenerational poverty, chances are you might not have enough to live on, but neither do your parents. So you're giving care to aging parents who can't afford a home health aid, for instance. You might have children who are going to subpar private, sorry, public schools or children who they have health problems because of asthma or chemicals, right? And they're under threat. So it's not only the impoverished individual is suffering, the generations above or below with whom they are just integrally tied also are suffering. And so it's very difficult for families to navigate these dire problems of physical health, safety, nutrition. 
um, housing security. It really is just a, a really quite devastating scenario in the U.S. and many other parts of the world. It's also racially stratified. I know that's kind of a sensitive topic, but there is systemic racism in many parts of the world, xenophobia. And so that's an added layer that makes it that much more difficult for people. So these are very major social problems that seep into pretty much every domain of life in the U.S. and I would argue worldwide. Mm -hmm. And since you mentioned race, and of course, as you said, this is an extremely sensitive topic in the U.S. in particular, but also in Europe and elsewhere, I guess. Um, are there in the U.S. racial and, and ethnic differences when it comes to advanced care planning? Yeah, that's that's a good question. In the United States, there are racial and ethnic disparities in pretty much every health outcome whereby white people have more advantages than black and Hispanic persons. And it extends to health behaviors as well, like advanced care planning. And some people might say, well, why is advanced care planning important? It's important because every single one of us is going to die someday, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is to ensure that people are dying a death where they receive comfort care, that they're not forced to make difficult decisions, make difficult decisions for their children. And we do know in the United States that preparation of articulating what you want and having it carried out much higher by a factor of almost two to one whites versus blacks and Hispanics. And there are a lot of reasons. Um, the easy answer that that's not true is people are like, well, maybe it's health literacy. You know, blacks and Hispanics don't know as much about healthcare. Now, that actually isn't one of the explanations. It comes back actually to income and wealth. People who in the United States who own homes, who are fortunate enough to own homes and to have money in the bank, they tend to write a will so they can give those resources to their family. And when they see their lawyer to have a write a will having to do with their property, that's when they do their healthcare planning as well. So if you have communities of people with no wealth, with no home ownership, who feel they don't need a will, they're not going to have that lawyer who helps them get their healthcare plans. So it really puts the onus on healthcare providers and kind of community workers like social workers to talk to all people who are ill or older adults and asking them, what kind of treatment do you want? Do you want a ventilator? Do you want hospice? What do your kids want for you? And really working with them to help ensure that they can die on their own terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking about healthcare here, but unfortunately, I think it's true that in most domains of people's lives, it's it's really hard to find even one single one single domain where, uh, for example, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and other kind of minority identities doesn't uh, make any difference at all in people's lives, and people are not. Uh, discriminated against, or if, if not discriminated, at least they have some sort of uh, social, political, economic disadvantage. Right. Absolutely. And one finding that's kind of, I find most disheartening, sometimes people feel, well, maybe it's social class, right? It's not race, it's class. That's something you hear a lot in the United States. But when you do these studies of health, looking at black, white differences, even if you look, for instance, just at college graduates, for instance, mm -hmm. we still see gaps. And so there's something called a kind of it's a, it's a diminishing returns argument that for each additional year of schooling, of education, which should be this health protective resource, 
whites still gain more health benefits and more economic benefits for every year of schooling relative to a black American. And that says, again, working hard, going to college, it'll help, but is it going to fight that racism? No, it still means there's elevated risk of these health problems, bringing it back to that systemic racism that often goes back generations in the United States. And that's kind of embedded in some of our social policies and practices. Mm -hmm. And talking still about healthcare planning, uh, how do perceptions of one's own and uh, spousal survival affect uh, that kind of planning? Yeah, that's a good question, right? Oftentimes we think people might not do advanced care planning if they think they're going to live forever, right? I'm not going to die. Why do I need to do all of this? And what we find is that people's perceptions do affect how they plan. And there is kind of a racial or ethnic difference here. On average, Black Americans kind of overestimate the longevity. And part of the reason why is rates of premature death are so high in Black communities in the United States due to things like homicide and, and violence and a lot of awful causes that people might think, well, you know, I'm going to outlive the odds because I've made it to 60. Um, but that could be a factor also that contributes to advanced care planning. Um, but what we found is that people who have no idea how long they're going to live, if they can't envision their healthcare future, those are the people who are least likely to make plans. And so we think there might be some kind of death denialism going on there. Those people who don't want to think about how long they're going to live, who don't even want to touch that topic, those are many cases of the same people who do not make these plans and preparations, which ironically will only go back and hurt them. Those who don't want to think about death may actually have the worst deaths because they're not taking that step to make plans to increase their comfort at the end of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, is end-of-life decisions, uh, like, for example, in the extreme case, euthanasia, something that you also do work on? I've written about it a bit. And in the United States, um, you know, euthanasia is not legal, right? And mm -hmm. But what is increasing in, in some states is something called medical aid in dying. And this is the case whereby if someone has a terminal illness, multiple providers had confirmed that they likely have only a couple of months to live and they don't have depression, they can request from their healthcare provider medications that will, will basically essentially end their life. People cannot get these medications easily. People don't do this capriciously. There's a lot of oversight. And this helps people, again, with, with no hope of survival who are living with discomfort to die on their own terms. So it's something that's legal in a very small handful of states. But the interesting thing is of those handful of people who request the medications, most don't actually take them. But it is something that gives people control should they choose to take those steps forward. But very controversial, right? And there's been a move to take the word suicide out of it. It's not physician-assisted suicide anymore. It's now medical aid in dying to underscore that it's helping people who were going to die anyhow just to compress that period of pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really frustrates me a bit when it comes to euthanasia. Of course, I know this is also a matter of values, moral values, religious yeah. values, and all of that, and I understand it. But mm -hmm. sometimes people just um, may uh, just tell straight out lies or put out their information that is incorrect. Like, for example, there are people that are against euthanasia that say that if it becomes 
legal anywhere, then uh, people will ju uh, the state will just get rid of people that uh, are being kept alive in some way. Uh, but I mean, euthanasia is about individuals themselves making the decision to end their lives earlier with help if they think it's no longer worth to uh, being uh, worth it being alive. And I mean, if you look at data from Belgium, for example, where euthanasia is very much legal, even for some mental health conditions. I mean, it's very, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people, even the ones who suffer the most, who uh, opt for or, or choose euthanasia. So, yeah, I could not agree more. I think there are these arguments out there that often are driven by religion or other forms it's like oh it's a slippery slope if we allow yeah. people to do this we're going to be killing old people and you know it's ridiculous because at least if you look at the legislation in the united states to even be able to request the medication is a very lengthy and stringent list of criteria mm -hmm. we need to make sure it's not that you're feeling depressed today and you ask for it you need to have Several healthcare providers attest that you're not making this an emotional moment. They attest that the illness is in fact terminal. And there's an added layer that you can make the request, but then you have to sit and wait to make sure you're sure and then wait a couple of weeks and then issue it again. And even then, kind of exact, exactly as you said, of those who ultimately do request and get the medications to hasten their dying, it's a tiny fraction who take it and they are all terminal ill of very distressing causes. So this notion that it's going to lead to anything like a mass suicide is just misguided and wrong. It's an option for people who are in profound physical pain, who don't want to suffer, who do not want to lose all of their physical capacities, their communication capacity, and they're doing it in a very measured way. So I think whatever you can do to kind of squash these misperceptions that people, uh, you know, spread is, is a very important service. Yeah, I, I'm going to change topics, but I, I also wanted to touch on that a little bit because here in Portugal, people are discussing uh euthanasia politically they are discussing if, if it should become legal or not and i mean it's a very very frustrating <laughs> discussion but uh, because of the reasons i have just said and you said as well but uh anyway let's see what I, I i hope that when this interview is out uh, things will be a bit better but i i'm not uh, my hopes are not very high uh, anyway uh that comment aside Moving on to, to another topic. So uh, earlier we touched a little bit on widowhood. So, and I would like to ask you a couple of questions about how people deal with it. So uh, what have you studied about resilience to loss and chronic grief after people lose their spouse in this case? Yeah. Yeah, I've written a lot on, on grief and specifically the death of a spouse. And mm -hmm. one of the main things I try to underscore from my research is just squashing myths. Um, so I think we need to abandon the myth that there are stages of grief, right? Not everybody goes through the Kubler-Ross stages of grief in that order. There are multiple ways to grieve. And it's important to underscore that some people are not 
grief stricken at all. It could be that they had a really problematic marriage and they're not that sad that it ended. Mm-hmm. In many cases, kind of similar to what we were just talking about, many older adults die after a very long and unpleasant illness, cognitive impairment. So some spouses actually feel relieved that their loved one is out of pain. And so for these people, they're not feeling terribly depressed. They were depressed watching their spouse suffer. Um, so there were multiple pathways. Um, but likewise, given that a, a good number will feel sad, lonely, anxious about being on their own, will indeed feel symptoms for at least for several months. There are different strategies that people use more or less effectively. Um, one strategy that does not work is denial, saying it didn't happen or trying to force themselves to be happy. That doesn't work. Some of the main things that work are reaching out for social support. Again, that's not that surprising, but talking to family members, getting help. Um, another coping strategy that used to be considered unhealthy, but now is, is what's called continuing bonds, right? In the old days, it was considered that if your spouse or loved one died and you talked about him too much, or you held on to their clothing and kept them in the closet, it was viewed as like unhealthy because you weren't moving on. And today, the belief is that you can incorporate those memories into your everyday life. You might say, what would my late spouse do in, in a problem like this? You might look at their pictures or tell their stories and keeping those memories present in a way that's uplifting, but does not stop you from doing other things like forming new relationships can be very healthy. So kind of acknowledging the loss, talking about it rather than trying to just block it out are considered in general some of the most effective ways to uh to maintain emotional well-being after the inevitable sadness of the loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, in what ways can widowhood affect people's social lives? I mean, can sometimes uh, can it sometimes affect, for example, their social participation? Yeah, social life is definitely affected by um, widowhood, um, especially in the early stages, even if we know it's good for people to kind of get back out there and to either go back to work or to volunteer. For some, that's a hard thing to do. Um, For some who are very dependent on their late spouse, doing anything on their own is a challenge, right? Volunteering, going to the movies, even going out with friends can be viewed as very stressful. And sadly, sometimes the the social interactions of widowed people diminish not due to their own choice, but because other people are not inviting them out. And that sounds a little counterintuitive, but we know most people deny death They're not good at talking about death. They don't know what to say or what to do. And to avoid that awkwardness of inviting a widow to dinner, they just don't invite her or him because they don't want to have those scary conversations. And so sometimes people just leave them on their own, which is not the right thing to do. Um, So my advice is always, if there's someone who lost a family member, just reach out, see how they're doing, feel the waters and see if they want to come out and socialize. And if they don't, they will say so but not inviting people and neglecting them out of discomfort is probably one of the worst things we can do. Right. So there's one last topic I would like to explore with you today. Uh, We've already touched a little bit on it, uh, inequality. So how does it affect people in their old age? Yeah, many ways. That's actually the topic of my last book called golden years. We often think that in old age, people aren't poor because they have a pension, right? They have a public pension. What's mm-hmm. the problem? Yeah. But in the United States, in most parts of the world, the public pension, 
Social Security in the US is only one leg of what we call the three-legged stool of retirement income. The money that people have to live on in old age is what they get from the state, what they get from their private pension, and then the money they have from their, their savings or wealth, that interest. For many Americans, especially those with less education, with poorer quality jobs, their three-legged stool has only one leg, Social Security. They don't have savings. They don't have interest income. There's a dramatic racial gap in wealth, meaning home ownership or savings. And you're only lucky enough to get a private pension if you had a white collar job like a professor or a lawyer, whereas people who work at you know, Starbucks at baristas might not get that. And so that's the reason why we see dramatic, dramatic differences in old age poverty. So it's about you know 10% overall. But if you're a white married man, it's about 2%. If you're a black or Hispanic woman who is unmarried, it's as high as 35%. So even though we have amazing support, social security, a wonderful program, it's not sufficient to help those who have had lifetimes of economic or gender or race-based adversity and obstacles. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are people that argue that uh, inequality is not really so much of an issue. It's much more if people are, it's much more an issue of absolute poverty, for example. And if people at the bottom of the pyramid, let's say, have enough, then inequality is not a problem at all. But is that really the case? Isn't inequality just by itself a problem? Yeah, I think inequality by itself is, is an ethical problem, right? How much does one person need at the top? But even those who make those kind of arguments, there is the absolute fact that for some older adults, especially women, especially women of color, especially women who live on their own, their absolute levels of poverty are 20, 25, 30%. And that's really important because we think older adults don't have expenditures. They do. They have very large healthcare expenditures. And even though we have Medicare in the United States, which is kind of the health insurance for retirees, it does not cover everything. And that's kind of a myth, right? There's the main Medicare, which covers kind of general healthcare, but you need to actually buy these other parts. And this might be too technical, but there's parts B and D and D that cover other things. So medications, for instance, hearing aids, walkers, some of these things you actually have to pay extra insurance for. So if you're living check to check, that means you might not take all of your medications. You might take fewer than you need. You might not refill them. You might not have a good walker, which means you can't really go out and about. So your social life is compromised. So there are absolute poverty issues in here that impede many areas of life. And providing social security is wonderful, but it's not a cure-all. There's still deep pockets of economic security, lack of attention to healthcare on the basis of cost, and nutritional, right? As we talked about earlier, food insecurity. And these things absolutely persist in the United States and most other parts of the world, especially for women. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I find it really fascinating to talk with sociologists who do work on the U.S. because there are, I've already said that throughout the interview, but there are many instances where when it comes to uh, the kinds of uh, services Europeans expect from the state uh, yeah, are very different from the ones Americans are used to. So, for example, when it comes to healthcare, I live here in Portugal and we have universal 
healthcare. So it's not, of course, a perfect system. There's waiting lists for surgeries even and all of that. But at least people uh, uh, can expect that they will have access to something even if they have no money at all. But when it comes to the US in many aspects, the situation seems to be very different from most of Europe. Yeah, it is very different. It's also uneven. And, you know, there are many problems with the U.S., but there actually are are many types of local supports and services. So oftentimes a community will have like a wraparound adult daycare, something called PACE. And these are community centers in the neighborhood that older adults can go to for meals, for instance. But it's uneven. So I think that's something important. And I think, you know, the United States isn't alone. Um, you know, I'm thinking in other parts of the world, like, you know, Korea ha and has a very high rate of old age poverty. So in some parts of Asia, historically, there was the belief your children will care for you. Well, that's not happening anymore. The children are going to urban areas, just as you, in the United States. And so in some parts of the world, there's the assumption your family will care for you. But if the family doesn't care for you and the government also doesn't kind of hop on and provide some supports, there are very high rates of poverty there as well. So it's kind of differs country to country. And the United States, I think, does fare poorly relative to Europe along a lot of dimensions. Although there are, again, some local level programs, um, nonprofits, for instance, that do really good work, like a Meals on Wheels. But I think the term used in the U.S. is patchwork, right? It's kind of you paste things together uh, and, and make it work. And I'm sorry, there's an ambulance driving by my office right now, speaking of healthcare and um, food delivery, <laughs> but it has now passed. So, and it's not for lack of caring. I think that's something else. People do care deeply, but we're a very large country and we're a really diverse country, right? Our layer, our level of kind of economic inequality is so large and we're so diverse that I think there is that feeling that, you know, we have to be very strategic and, and, and use local level services to help make up for that shortfall in some cases. Mm -hmm. And for example, you mentioned Korea and that cultural aspect of people sort of expecting uh, family, the children, for example, to take care of their parents in their old age. But I mean, there are some of those uh, things might have worked in smaller scale societies. I mean, where the family was together all the time and there was this, commu uh, this community where people helped each other, but also, of course, they, did, they didn't have access really to the sorts of uh, healthcare and technology we have nowadays. So, uh, and all of these things, if you expect for family to take care of it, to take to take care of their old members, they're very expensive without any help from the state. And so, even if the children are very much wanting to help their uh, old parents sometimes they can't. Yeah, absolutely. It's expensive, 
or they might have moved far away. There were smaller family yeah. sizes, right? You have fewer kids to care for you. And even in terms of direct care, getting back to gender that we talked about earlier, that most women work, right? And they're caring for kids. And so just that having a family member who's not working to do the hands-on care, even that's something that's changed, right? As we've had more women, and for good reason, enter the labor force. So I think one of the takeaways is that social policies just need to keep up with the realities of social life, whether it's gender relationships, uh, you know, racial and ethnic disparities, elongated lifespan. That's something we haven't talked about directly, but it's part of it. People are living longer than ever before. So it's one thing to provide services for someone until they're 70. Now we need to provide services and supports for people to their 90, 100, with those years often spent with cognitive impairment. And so, and on top of that, there's population aging. So there's more people needing care for longer periods of time with fewer children to kick in. So again, we need to just be really creative about meeting these needs of an aging population in a way that's kind of fair and just and equitable. Right. So Dr. Carr, just before we go, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Yes, I wish I had committed it to memory, uh, but my name is Deborah Carr. I'm at Boston University, and if someone Googles me, they can find my webpage with links to books and articles and papers. Um, and if they have a burning question that they'd like to send in a nice way, um, they can send it to C-A-R-R-D-S at B-U dot E-D-U. Okay, great. I will be leaving links to it to that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and for helping me navigate uh, aging in the US and other social and political issues there because I'm European and I'm I don't think I'm uh, well informed enough to, to do it alone so thank you so much for your time and it was a pleasure to talk to you oh, thank you and, and please feel free to edit anything so I sound smarter <laughs> hi guys thank you for watching this interview until the end if you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal the links are in the description box of this interview and if you like this interview Please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Karen Litzka and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Herbert Gintis, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, George Pinha, Michael Stormier, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dan Bauer, Fergal Cusson, Harl Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Nierstand, T. Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Eira, Tom Hummel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez, Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Danners Mani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stazewski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Doug, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzka, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Bedelfi, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morton Eichland, 
Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mal Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, Giorgio Steofanis, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, João Barbosa, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herrigman, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracies, Tom Roth, D. RPMD and Eager N. And special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Staffiniat, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Ugni, Curtis Dixon, Belnick Miller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.